right. Hey, everybody. My name is Joe. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And um, I wanted to read a paragraph out of the big book before I start going. This is, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answer will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. I couldn't wait to get up here. I do, I, 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 I've been looking forward to this for so long. I spoke at the Kentucky State Conference Convention in 1990. It was in Paducah, Kentucky. I was sober 11 years. My wife and I had have two sons. They were five and six at the time. Uh, my brother was in prison five years at the time. And uh, I look back at that man and I look back at my life. Boy, did I have a lot of fixed ideas on stuff. I could tell you all kind of stuff. It served me well at the time. But when I was asked to come back 21 years later, I thought, I get to go back and give him a report on what happened about my life since I was 11 years sober. And I couldn't wait to do that. You know why? This is my backyard. This is my backyard in Alcoholics Anonymous. I could be talking in Tampa. Nobody would know me in Tampa. They'd know me as some guy from Cincinnati. There are people here who know my mother. Yeah. There are people here who knew me when I first got sober. There are people here who call me their sponsor. So this is a privilege for me to get up here and share with you what's happened in my life. And uh, hopefully, hopefully I do a good job here in 60 minutes. I figure any more than 60 minutes, you're lying. So I'm going to keep it right at 60 minutes. Remember that, Clancy. <laughs> I won't do it. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Goodness gracious. Um, you know, uh, I sometimes take for granted. If it wasn't for newcomers, I would take for granted how good my life is. Uh, I, I've not been in good health the last couple of years. I'm just now getting back on my feet again. And uh, my wife and I were on vacation down in Brazil for a couple of weeks. And we met a, another couple from Mesa, Arizona, NAA. We went on vacation together, and uh, the guy that was with me, Dave, uh, we were walking on the beach, and the water was like bath water. And we're walking like we own the beach. And I says, Dave, do you remember back in 1984 or 85, talking behind the church in an alley in Cincinnati, behind the Christ Church on Wednesday night after our home group? He says, yeah, I remember that. I says, I remember you were living in a, in a guy's one-room apartment and sleeping on his floor on 13th and Vine, which is a bad section of town, and selling beer at the Cincinnati Reds ballpark to make a living. And uh, me, it was just me and my wife living in, a, in an apartment out in the suburbs, and I said, can you ever imagine from those discussions we had in that alley behind the church talking about the steps and the fellowship and a reliance on a higher power that we'd ever be walking on a beach in Brazil. I says, you can't get from that alley to Brazil. There is no Brazil step. You can't do it. There's no Brazil chapter. There's no, 
uh, into South America or anything like that in the big book. But there we were. And we look at each other and we realize that the reason we were there is we've been following the path. We've been following the path, and on that day, that's where our path was, is on the beach in Itacari, Brazil, walking in the sunshine like we own the beach. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, is walking on the path. I think it's important to talk about walking on the path. Um, I was so sick when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't even know I was on the path. There were other people around me that were on the path. They seemed to be goofy. They were too happy. Uh, people that were that happy, I thought, were either religious fanatics or there's something mentally wrong with them. Because you can't be that happy about not drinking. I thought they were out back drinking or smoking pot or something. But I was on the path with these people, and I was just swept up on the path with these people that shared their lives with me. And hopefully that's, that's what I'll do tonight. Um, a lot of things look different from 32 years sober than it did at 11 years sober. And it's much better. It's much, much better than anything I could have ever planned on. When I grew up, I grew up in North College Hill in a little two-bedroom house out in the suburbs. And uh, my mother and father, God bless their souls, my mother's in a rest home now. She's 81 years old. My dad's passed away. But they suffered from alcoholism terribly. Oh, my God, it was terrible. And um, we didn't know any different. That was normal for us. And uh, we had some strange relatives that lived down the street, my grandmother and my aunt, and we visited them two times a year. That's why we knew that they were related to us. Uh, my father's family were really tore up from alcoholism. Just, it, it was, he didn't have a chance. Yeah, my, my grandfather was a mean, mean drunk. He died a wet brain on a sawdust bed in a mental institution in 1963. That's how people like us die, was on the sawdust bed. Because they didn't change him anymore, you know what I mean? That He was just out of it, he was gone. But that's the man that my father, uh, father was, and um, it warped a lot of their personalities. My dad had a sister, and she was classified as uh, Social Security at age of 12. And what, they, what she would do is she would get her checks each month, and she'd go to the butcher store, and get the best grade meat you could get and go around and feed the dogs at the neighborhood at 4 o'clock in the morning. That was my Aunt Betty. My grandmother, she was this woman, maybe about 4 foot 6, 250, 300 pounds. You could see this, see the stress on her face, just terrible stress. On my mother's side of the family, my mother's mother lived in that same state mental institution that my father's father died in. And she lived there for 40 years of her life from the age of 24 until she died when she was 64. That's the way they treated women with alcoholism years ago as they kept them so drugged up, they just walked around, babbled, spit on themselves. It, it was warehouses for people. They warehoused my grandmother because of alcoholism. My mother and her two sisters grew up in an orphanage home. And uh, so that, that's my pedigree. And, uh, and I haven't even got to my problems yet. Jesus. And uh, growing up in an environment like that of alcoholism, you get a lot of mixed messages and missed messages. And it's not, nobody's doing anything on purpose. It's nobody's fault. It's just the nature of the illness. You know, people uh, get a lot of goofy ideas on what love is and what's give and take and, and how to share. And just, it's all twisted. It's all screwed up. And uh, I was afraid of my father. My father was a sometime father. He was a great provider financially, 
He made sure we had clothes and a roof over our head and food and refrigerator, stuff like that. But actually being involved in our lives, I remember going to McDonald's three times, I think. And we went to Coney Island once. That was it. That, 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 that was it. Not fun and fault. That's just the way it was. And the other times when he would come home drunk, you could tell if he was coming home drunk, he'd come up the driveway. The car would just race up the driveway. And it could be six in the evening. I'd go down in the basement behind the furnace. He had one of those big gravity furnaces with the big arms that looked like an octopus. And I could listen up through the registers and see if he was a happy drunk that day or if he was a mean drunk that day. And if he was a mean drunk that day, I'd get up and go to bed and act like I'm sleeping. But if he was a happy drunk that day, I'd go up and see him. That was my dad. That's the way it was. There was, there was no in-between. And uh, my mother, she had a lot of problems. My mother's alcoholism took off when we were kids. And uh, we didn't know this till years later, but my mom had other problems other than alcoholism. And uh, she was under a lot of stress. I remember as a kid, I guess I was about six or seven years old, I've got a younger brother, he's three years younger than me, we would walk with my mother to the store. My father had the only car, so if me and my brother and my mother wanted to go anywhere, we'd walk or take the bus. That's how we got around. But that was normal to us, so we didn't know any different. And I remember how my, how my mother's alcoholism made her look. And I didn't know that that was alcoholism. All I knew is that I was ashamed of how my mother looked. She was about this tall. She uh, weighed about... 190, 200 pounds. She had one of these uh, circus tent smocks on. They used to wear a smock all the time. They had the pockets in the front. And she looked like she was either ready to run a marathon or pass out. <laughs> Just, you know, she was drinking Carling Black Label beer, and the doctor prescribed her those Black Mollies, RJS Black Mollies. <laughs> so between the Mollies and the Carling Black Label, she didn't know whether to lay down or run to the store. <laughs> And we'd be with my mother walking down the street, and I'd see one of my buddies, and the way my mother looked embarrassed me. I hate to say that, but it embarrassed me. And I'd go across the street and act like I didn't know her. My buddies knew who my mother was, but that's, that was my response to being out in public with my mother. And my mother's a good person. She was just very, very sick from alcoholism. I uh, would come home. I guess I was six years old, and I came home one day. All the clothes in my room were in a big pile. Hangers out of the closets, drawers turned upside down, everything piled up. And I went in there and I went, what happened, Ma? What happened? You didn't fold your underwear right. I said, uh, oh, okay. Clean it all up. Just, and then for days on end, everything would be normal. And all of a sudden I'd come home Find mom stealing money from dad. He used to have one of the, he used to have one of these drawers that had the they didn't have he did checking accounts and stuff like that. They made money orders and paid cash. He had property taxes, utility bills, food. And I walked by the bedroom. It's a little two bedroom house. It's not hard to see people. And she was pulling a twenty out of there. And she looked at me and she says, "Don't tell your dad. You won't be able to get those allergy shots." So. Oh, okay, all right. And I, Dad comes home, where's the money? I know I put that money in there. You take that money. Did you do it? No, I didn't take anything. I didn't take anything. Else. And it set up this, this type of environment where you didn't know what to believe or who to trust or anything like that. And uh, 
that was the type of environment I grew up in. And then for three or four days, everything be lovey-dovey, everything be secure, like leave it to beaver. And all of a sudden, something bizarre would happen like that. And I guess what I'm trying to say is in our home is supposed to be a place where you could go from the outside world and slam the door and go, man, is it a crazy world out there. I'm glad I'm home. Well, the door on our home never closed. There was no safe place to go. And that's just the way it was. No blame. It's just the way it was. She couldn't help herself. And my dad couldn't help himself. They were sick from alcoholism. Then I got an opportunity to join the Boy Scouts. I thought, what is that? Well, you get to go to a meeting once a week, and then you get to go camping once a month on the weekend. I go, you mean you get to leave the house? (laughs) I'll do that. Where do I go? What do I do? And I got, I got into Boy Scouts, I guess, at 11 or 12 years old, and I liked it because it was one of those things where it was dependable and it was consistent. If you did this, this happened. If you did this, this happened. You had some kind of say-so on the outcome of what you were doing. Nobody could come in and screw it all up. And I thrived on it. I liked it. It wasn't that I was a goody two-shoes. I liked the environment of being able to do something and see the results of what I did. And by the age of 14, I was an Eagle Scout. I had God and Country Award in the church. Uh, I had a sponsor who sponsored all the boys that made Eagle Scout that year. Mine was Gene Langson, president of the University of Cincinnati. Uh, General West Moreland gave me my Eagle Scout Award, Time Magazine's Man of the Year. And both of these men tried to help me. A week before the ceremony where they gave these boys the Eagle Scout Award, Gene Langston said, I'd like to talk to you. Come on down. And I went into his office. He said, you ever think about going to college? I said, uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I really didn't because I was told if you don't have the money, you're not going to go. And we were poor, so I wasn't going. It was just, you know, one of those mindset things. He said, well, if you ever want to go to college, if you keep getting good grades like you're getting in school, we'll make sure you go to college. Don't worry about the money. Here, here here's my card. Take this. Here, when you turn 16, 17 years old, call me. We'll make sure you go to college if you want to go to college. And I walked out of his office going, oh, he doesn't mean that. I, I, don't, I, I don't buy that. I, I, he, he can't be telling me the truth. What's he going to do, be mean to a Boy Scout? I don't buy that. And then after the Eagle Scout ceremony, this general says, I like young men like you in my army. He called it my army. I guess if you're a general, you can do that. And he, and he said, have you ever thought about officers' candidate school? I go, No. I mean, I'm 14 years old. My mind's not out there. And he says, well, here's this card. If you keep getting good grades in school, you call this number. We can help you. Now, here's two very significant and very important people who tried to help me, and I didn't believe them. Because at the age of 13, I started drinking. I started drinking as a young man. And I look back on it now, and I see what happened. I couldn't see this in sobriety for a long time. I used to say, oh, I drank that night, nothing really happened, I had a great time, felt warm all over. I was 13, I was with people who were 17 and 18, I felt 17 and 18. It was great. I didn't go out and start, well, I've got to get more Bally High wine, where, where does more Boone's Farm, where is it, where is it? I didn't become obsessed with it. But something happened that very night. So I know right now something happened that very night I started to drink. I was invited to a party as a 13-year-old in 1967. During the Vietnam War, this girl had her brother was sending home pillowcases of pot from Vietnam. 
I didn't know. I'm 13 years old. I thought, you want me to come to your party? They were 17 and 18. They had beards and breasts. You remember that? <laughs> you want me at your party? Hell, I'll come. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I started smoking that. It's a little American flag cigarettes and all that. And I started getting high on that. I said, my mouth is dry. You have something to drink. They said, yeah, come on in the kitchen. And they gave me this. I was 13 years old. This bottle looked like it was this big, one of those big round bottles. It was a bottle of Bally High wine. I had never drank wine before. I drank that wine, and they were so high, they weren't even paying attention to me. And I'm just hitting this wine, and this wine is just so good. It was like Tahitian treat. It was like high C or fruit punch. Or, I just couldn't quit licking my lips. Just, mm, 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 mm. Just kept drinking it. Before you know it, I, I'm warm all over, man. Hey. And it, the bottle was empty, and it was like everything went in slow motion. They stopped and looked at me and went, you were supposed to pass that around. <laughs> Nobody told me. I, I mean, I didn't know anything about party etiquette. <laughs> no, I, it was my first party I had ever been to. But something happened to me that night drinking that Bally High wine. Something shifted in me because I was a confident young kid. You can't become an Eagle Scout without having some confidence in your judgment. But something happened to me that night. You know, I, I, I'm 56 years old. I took up the game of golf at 50 just for the fun of it, I think. And I learned real quick on the tee, if you're lined up and you're off by a quarter of an inch, 200 yards down there, you're in the weeds. <laughs> That's what happened that night to me. Something in me shifted, and it went, and that's all it took, and I didn't even know what happened. I felt so good, I didn't feel the shift. I was warm all over. I felt great. You know, it wasn't like, you feel a shift? <laughs> I don't feel a shift. <laughs> Damn. Oh. oh, I feel great. I didn't feel anything. I just feel warm. But I started to do things immediately from the very first time that I drank that played out all the way up to the day I got sober. I went home. My mother says, why are your eyes so red? I said, well, I was in a car with a bunch of boys and they had the, the, the windows rolled up and they were smoking. And I started lying about my drinking. I started lying about what I was doing. I was lying about who I was. And it changed how I felt about myself. I didn't know that then. I, I, I guess it's just the last five or six years I could really look back and see that something really did shift and happen that day. Because as, as time went on and I got older, I'm not going to go into the whole gamut of drugs and all that in the 60s, but you name it, we did it. And the whole time I'm drinking Boone's Farm wine, Strawberry Hill, Southern Comfort. I'm just, oh, it was great. I had a ball. It was, it was fun. It was fun. I didn't see any harm. And I'm not bothering anybody. Well, the whole time, that shift is getting deeper and deeper and deeper on how I saw myself. And by the time from 13 to 14, when those men of importance offered me an education or the military, an officer in the military, I thought, they really don't mean that. They, they, don't, they can't be talking about me. Now, if they would have talked to me before the Bally High, I would have said, what do I have to do? I can't believe, I'm honored that you would try to help me. What's my next step? What do I have to do? But I didn't believe it. I did not see myself as, as worthy of anybody helping them. Something shifted in me. And as I got older, uh, I started running away from home at 16 years old. Things went fast for me. 
I'm running away from home. Uh, I'm a busboy in a Chinese restaurant in North Miami Beach. I've got hair out to here. One of those big afros where you turn your head and the hair would catch up to it. It was one of those. And uh, I'm the only white guy in the Chinese restaurant. Everybody's Chinese. You know, and I'm a busboy going, egg roll, and my hair's out to here, and those Chinese guys are going, ha, ha, they're laughing. They, they love me. I was entertainment for them. And I was living in a trailer park. And after about two months, I got homesick. I was a 16-year-old kid, and I went home. And I started this cycle of running away and going to Florida. And my emotions started to call the shots in my life. I was no longer using any type of intellect or common sense or good judgment. It was just, why? I don't like how things are going. I'm leaving. I, 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 I went from somebody who liked to plan things out and see how things turn out to hitchhiking to Florida with no coat on, with nine cents in my pocket in February. What? Made sense to me at the time. I mean, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And by the time I'm 17 years old, I had to quit high school. They said, you can't pass anymore. You've missed too much school. And I said, well, if I can't pass, I quit. They said, you can't quit. I said, watch me. And I finished the 10th grade of high school. I quit school in my junior year and went into the Navy. And I went into the Navy. I was in there for a year and a half played a game to get out of the Navy after a year and a half. I didn't know I needed to drink until I got in that ship. I got in the bottom of that ship in the boiler room. Everything's 120 degrees. It never stops rolling. I'm going, damn, I made a bad choice here, didn't I? That's needing a drink. I didn't know that, but that's needing a drink. And uh, I said, i got to get the hell out of here. I can't do this. And I played a game to get out on flat feet, and they bought it, and I got out. And I went home to my mother, and my mother had gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1971. And I'd like to tell you this about my mother. My mother uh, was the way that she was, the way I described her. But as she started to get well in AA, we saw that she had changed physically. We didn't know anything about spirituality. All we know is mom went from 190 down to 115. She did her hair nice. She had nice clothes. She wore makeup. Her eyes were white. She had a mini skirt on with white go-go boots. I said, go head on, Mom. God, man. Wow. But you're still nuts. I, uh, my mind said, yeah, but she's still crazy. Dad said she's crazy. She's crazy. And we, me and my brother started, our drinking kept going on and on and on. Finally, it got to a point where my mother couldn't tolerate us. She couldn't maintain her peace of mind or her serenity with me and my brother coming in at 3 and 4 in the morning and breaking furniture and burning her floor with cigarettes and punching holes in walls and the police coming. And she, she said, I'm not, I can't live like this no more. And she kicked us out. And that's, you guys have heard my story. I end up on Skid Row on 15th and Scott in a sleeping room and my bed was a mattress on the floor. No sheets. I had an old cardboard box turned upside down for an end table. I had a light that hung by a wire on the ceiling. I had a four-pane window. One of the panes were broken out and you could hear the plastic tatter back and forth in the wind, and I didn't even think there was anything wrong. I thought, well, I'm just in between jobs right now. (laughs) And it never occurred to me it was my drinking. My mother was nuts. Mom's crazy. She thought anybody that drank was alcoholic. That's why she kicked me out. She's crazy. She don't understand. I can drink. She can't drink, but I can drink. You know, I'm the one living on the mattress. She's sober. But that's the way my mind saw it. I was the only one in the building that was under 65. 
There were 10 of us that lived in that building. I was the token hippie. I was 21 years old. And we all shared the same bathtub on the second floor and the same toilet. And I couldn't see anything wrong with my life. I, 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 just, I really thought, you know what powerless over alcohol and life unmanageable looks like to me? I need a job. That's what it looks like to me. It looks like I need, I need a girlfriend. I need a car that has gas in it. <laughs> yeah. I, maybe I need to go back to school. You know, my hair's out to here. I got bib overalls on, a shirt, socks, and shoes. And I'm thinking, I need to go back to college. It never occurred to me that I was there because of my drinking. Not one time, not one time. Never, never, never. And uh, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous the following year. I was 22. On April the 10th, 1977, I'd had a spiritual awakening that said, Go where your mother goes. Go where your mother goes. And uh, so I went to Alcoholics Anonymous at 405 Oak Street in Cincinnati. And when I walked in there, hair out to here, I smelled bad, no shirt, no underwear, no socks, and an old pair of worn-out earth shoes. And I'm so glad they didn't say no shirt, no shoes, no service. They just said, come on in, we're glad to see you. That made me nervous because I knew how I looked and I knew how I smelt. And I thought, you're glad to see me? And I sat at a table with a man. He was old. He was 55. I'm 56. I wish I could go back to 55. And he said, if you're an alcoholic like we are, you're in the grips of a progressive, fatal, and incurable illness. Never gets any better without spiritual relief. And then there's just another woman. She was really old. She was 40. And she was a housewife. And she said, if you want to find a way up and out of your problems, we'll share with you how we did it. And I heard my first pitch or first lead of Alcoholics Anonymous, Don M. And uh, it was before Don had surgery. His nose was off to the side where a guy had hit him with a tire iron. And uh, he talked about getting revenge. He went back and got the guy out of a bar and tied him down to the railroad track and waited for the train. I thought, I like that guy. I like that guy. This AA is all right. This is an interesting stuff. I mean, this is my first meeting of AA. And he talked about doing time in Eddyville, but he also talked about his drinking, and he talked about how it affected him and how it made him feel and how he thought. And I thought, I'm kind of like these people, but I don't know if I'm really like them or not. And I, I got my sponsor my very first night. I turned to the guy next to me. I said, would you be my sponsor? I was neurotic. I, I, you know, I thought, I might not have underwear, but God damn it, I want a sponsor. I, you know? <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah. And he sat there, and he told me what he did to stay sober. He says, Joe... He says, uh, I have a home group I go to every Wednesday. He says, uh, I talk to my sponsor on a regular basis. He says, I've taken the steps. He says, uh, I go to a jail meeting down at the workhouse once a week. He says, every other week I go down here to uh, Rollman's. It's a mental institution to do an AA meeting. And he held his book up and he said, and I read this book and I try to do what it says to do. He says, you might want to try it. And I thought to myself, this guy's nice, but I need underwear, I need a job, I need a car. And he's handing me a book and telling me to go to jail, going to a mental What is going to a mental institution going to do to help me? I'm trying to stay out of them. I don't want to go in them. I remember going to visit Grandma all those years. I don't want to go to Longview. And I, I came around to AA for 89 days. 
And I got the brilliant idea, I think I, I don't have a problem with pot. So I went to my sponsor, I said, Mike, I haven't had a problem with pot like I did alcohol. He says, well, then I suggest you smoke it. <laughs> I said, I've hit the lottery. I got the best sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> but he knew I had to be convinced on my own that if my higher power was in a bag of pot, I was in trouble because sooner or later the bag runs out. And besides, when I smoke pot, I got a drink. I, got, I didn't know I could no longer enjoy that stuff anymore. I got so paranoid on it, I went to bed at 5.30 in the afternoon. I locked the door, pulled the shade down. Oh, God, I hope nobody from AA calls. Jesus, this is terrible. And I went and got me a... Uh, this might date me, but I went and got a couple eight-packs of Little Kings. You remember the Little Kings? i got to calm down. Like, this isn't good. You know what it is? Not, not good. And I started this cycle of going in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I came back after a few days and like my tail between my legs, like, a, like I had let AA down or let my sponsor down. It's terrible. And he was there. I said, would you still be my sponsor? He says, yeah. What would you learn? I go, man, I, I don't want to do that again. I, that pot's bad stuff, man. I don't. And I, so I stayed sober four months, went to a meeting every night, drank again. Came back, stayed sober five months, went to a meeting every night, like I, and I drank like I had never been to AA. I walked out of a meeting that I chaired at five months. And I'm walking down the street and my head says, you know, a bottle of MD-2020 would be really good right now. And my head says, well, why don't you go get it? I said, yeah, yeah. I think I'll go get it. And I went and got it. And I'm drinking this bottle and it's halfway down and I'm feeling hot. You know it. You can't drink MD and stay cold. I started feeling hot and sweating and I thought, you're out of your mind. You just chaired a meeting of AA, and you're drinking MD 2020. God damn, Joe. You, you're, you're a loser in AA. How can you be a loser in AA? I, I must be one of those people that are constitutionally incapable, like they talk about in those meetings all the time. Because I thought, I was sober for five months, and I'm drinking like nothing. I went through a hospital for alcoholism, and a week out of there, I'm drinking like I'd never been in the hospital. I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. I, I, just, I don't know what the hell's wrong with me. And on October 5th of 1978, I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know that that was going to be my sobriety date. I'd been to A so many times before. I don't know about anybody here that goes in and out. I just didn't care no more. I didn't care if I stayed sober. I didn't care if I got drunk. I knew I was going to drink again. I knew it. So, you know, I'm just sitting here taking up a seat, letting my mind clear up before I get back out there with a new plan and start drinking again. You know? But this time, something was different. There was a guy over in a corner. He had a diamond ring on. He's smoking this big cigar. And I used to see him and I used to think, you SOB. You don't know what it's like to live out there on a the street. You've got that big Cadillac out there and smoking that big cigar with a diamond ring on. You don't know. I hate you. What do you know about me? But something happened that night. Something happened that night. Because after the meeting, he came up and said, you want to go out and eat with us? I went, yeah, I'll go with you. All right, I'll go with you. I think you're dumb, but I'll go with you. I couldn't fight off my own judgment anymore. I couldn't fight off my own judgment of other people. I, 
And I'd like to tell you this, this thing about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, that's a hell of a place for a human being to be because there's no hope there. When you take hope away from a human being, that's a bad place to be, and that's where I was. I felt like I was stupid. I felt immoral. I felt uneducated. I felt like a quitter. Uh, I felt like I was running out of time. I thought nothing was ever going to get better for a guy like me. It might get better for you guys. You guys are lucky, but you don't understand. It doesn't work for people like me. And uh, I found myself following people in A that I never would have followed before. There was a wonderful group of people. Don D., he's dead now. He was a historian for the uh, riverboat, the Delta Queen. Followed him with another group of people. Jerry, he used to work for the phone company. Followed a man and a woman who owned a wine shop in Hyde Park. I went, I'm going out with wine dealers, man. This is cool. How do you stay sober dealing wine like that? Just a neat mix of people. Wonderful. A guy just out of the penitentiary. It was a beautiful, magic time. It was just the synchronicity of it is like everything just fell in place. And I'm standing there to watch it. And I'm in it. And I don't know what I'm in. But all of a sudden I know I'm following people that I never would have given the time of day. And I started following my sponsor. And uh, he told me, he says, look, you're not new anymore. He says, I'm not going to come pick you up. You know where these AA meetings are at. You want it, you come get it. You get here, I'll give you a ride home. I said, oh, okay, that, that, that's fair. All right. And I'd get to the meetings. And I was sober about ten days. And I was, the meeting was over. I said, hey, hey, hey. I got to the meeting. Can you give me a ride? He goes, yeah, come on out. Come on out the car. And I'm sitting in the car with him. He had a 1972 Orange Nova with mag wheels. Eight-track stereo and air conditioning. He was sharp. He was. He had, his, he had, he had, those, he had a leather jacket on, you know, with them, them uh, uh, disco shirts from the 70s with the big lapels and stuff. And he puts his key in the ignition and he doesn't turn it on. He just lets it dangle there. And he looks at me and he says, I need to tell you something. I said, what? He says, I need to tell you that if you make staying sober and being an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous the most important thing in your life, you will never have to worry about money. You will never have to worry about a job. You will never have to worry about relationships. They will eventually all be taken care of for you. I promise you. And I looked at him, and for ten seconds I thought, Wow, this guy's telling me the truth. Why would he make something like that up? And then ten seconds later, it's, come on, i got laundry to do, man. They, they don't let me use the washer and dryer after ten. But it was just a fleeting, it was a promise. And my mind grabbed onto it. It grabbed on, I thought. And, and there was many times early in sobriety, I think, you promised. This stuff better work out. You promised. And I, I got to 30 days sober and I thought, I'm going to run. I, I know what it feels like. I, I'm getting ready to go back out. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. I called my sponsor and said, what did you do when you got like that? He says, have you been reading that book? I go, yeah, but I don't understand it, Mike. I, I read it, and I've got to go over the same damn paragraph over and over. It's like my mind reads it, and there's a hole in my mind, and just falls through. And I, oh, and I've got to go back. I can't remember stuff. I, I can't get it. I, and he was my big book. He was living proof of my big book. He made the 12 steps as simple as a walk through the park. It had to be. For somebody as sick as me. This whole thing is about 
something that sick people can do to get well. We don't get well to figure out definitions of words that change our life. We follow the path of the person in front of us going, I don't know where he's going, but it's got to be better where I'm at. I'll go with you. And he says, did you write that inventory? And I said, I'll write it. And I I thought, this is a bunch of crap. This is words on paper. All right, I'll do it. And I wrote the stuff down, and I went and read it to him. And uh, I went through the first nine steps at about 30 days sober. And at 60 days sober, I didn't know how to act. The obsession was removed. How do you live without an obsession to drink when every day of your life is revolved around, how much money do I have? Is there going to be alcohol there when I get there? I wonder what they're drinking. It's just, God, yeah, they... And all of a sudden, take that away. Boy, I got a lot of time on my hands now. <laughs> you know? Whoa! You know, I didn't know what to do with peace of mind. And I talked to him, and he knew I had been changed. He knew that I had tapped into a power greater than myself that had begun to solve my problem for me. And I've never heard too many sponsors say this, but Mike D told me this, best sponsor a man could ever have. He says, you're free, Joe. I am? He says, yeah, you're free of the obsession. He said, you know you can do anything you want in life now? I said, what do you mean? He goes, you want to start a business? Find out how to start a business. You find the right woman that comes along and you want to get married? Get married. You want to go to college? You do whatever the hell you want to do that anybody else does out there, provided that you make AA the number one priority in your life. You think you can do that? I went, yeah, uh, I, I, I can do that. And he walked away and I thought... That sounds too good. It just sounds, I, I can't be that free. There's got to be a catch. There's something wrong there. And what he told me was true. What he told me was absolutely true. And I've been following this path since October 5th of 1978. And what I found is by following the path, the path changes me. I don't have to understand the path. I don't have to believe the path. I just have to be willing to walk on the path. At two years sober, I got married. I couldn't believe that. I was going to start my own group before that called Sex Without Partners. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm president. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I got a woman that just thinks I'm the best thing since sliced bread. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. I was sober two, three years. I got a pilot's license. I learned how to fly a plane. Somebody says, why are you doing that? I said, my sponsor said I could do anything I wanted to as long as I put A first. I was like a little kid. He told me I could. He told me I could do anything I want. Well, I, do you have that much faith in your sponsor like a little kid? I had that much faith, that much faith in Mike Dries. Oh, Mike D. Excuse me. Nothing's going to happen to him if you break his anonymity, I can tell you that. I had that much faith in what that man was telling me. But what he was telling me was what was in here. It was in here. He was laying the path out for me. He made it so enticing that I couldn't help but walk down and walk with him. Hey, he didn't have to call me up. I'd call him up. Where are you going tonight, Mike? What meeting? You, how do you get there? What are, you, what are you doing after the meeting? He didn't have to ask me to do nothing. I was, I was in his hip pocket because everything he did, when I did it, my life got better. I thought, man, this Mike D, he is on to something. This dude is spiritual. I was sober five years before I found out he was stealing all that out of the big book. I thought he was spiritual. <laughs> I was sober about, oh, five years, and my wife had a little baby. And it was on November the 20th, 1983, and we named him after my sponsor. 
And a year later, on the same day, November 20th, 1984, she did it again. And we named him after my sponsor, Sponsor Bob. We thought that much of these men and what they did for other people, that it wouldn't occur to me to name him anything else. And uh, Bob was born crippled. You know, I'd learned that God was going to take care of me. I'd come to believe that, that God was going to take care of me. But now all of a sudden I have this little boy who's born crippled with his feet on upside down or turned in like this and completely upside down. And I thought, what am I going to do about this? And then my brother just been sentenced to a lot of years in prison. I thought, what am I going to do about that? And they were talking about closing the plant where I work. And I go, what am I going to do about that? There were a lot of things that I felt like I had to do something about, and it was overwhelming. It never occurred to me that God was going to take care of that boy, whether I lived or died. That he was going to take care of my brother, that he was going to take care of my wife. But for some reason, I took that responsibility on. It was overwhelming. And uh, there was a man who came to the door of our house one morning, and I'd been working a lot of hours because they were going to close the place that I worked, and I wanted to work as much as I could. I thought, if I'm going to worry, I'm going to worry on the beach in Florida. And I worked like four months in a row, seven twelves, and I was just burnt out. I I just took a day off. I fell over, and I thought, i got to go lay down. I got off at 7 in the morning at 7.05. I'm in the front of my house because I live real close to work, and there's this guy parked the wrong way on the wrong side of the street with his door open, and he's walking with a briefcase. And I thought, oh, jeez, a salesman at 7.05. I just want to go to bed. I don't want to be. He has nothing I want to buy. I'm tired. I want to lay down. But something inside of me said, give him 10 seconds. And he walks up, and he's slurring his speech. And I thought, a drunk salesman at 7.05. (laughs) And he said, my wife's name is Vanessa. He says, does Vanessa live here? And I says, yeah, why? He says, well, I'm from the shrine, and we heard that her son has problems with his feet, and we would really like to help you straighten that problem out. Do you think I could talk to her? And I said, uh, well, yeah, come on in. And we found out that the reason he slurred his speech is because he had cancer of the tongue and radiation had killed his saliva gland on this side and if he didn't drink water his tongue stuck to the side of his mouth and when he left I thought to myself I wonder how many times God sent help my way but because I sized it up and judged it as something I didn't need I said get the hell out of here and I thought man oh man probably more times than I'd like to admit and that little boy had lots of surgeries on his feet, lots of them. I didn't know what, what as a father, I didn't know what I was going to do. I really didn't. Scared? You goddamn right I was scared. You can't go to enough meetings. You can't pray enough. You can't write enough. I was scared. you damn right. I'm human. But what I didn't know what was God's plan for that little boy. And that's what I wasn't seeing. Because just as much as I'm on a path and we're on a path, our family members are on a path too. A lot of times, it's our, none of our business. We need to step back and let them live their path. And Bob got to be bigger, and he got kind of heavy set, and 
he couldn't run it off because he, he had bad feet and he didn't have any calves. I mean, he, he played basketball. When he went to play basketball, he went to jump, he'd go, I knew. I said, he was wanting to jump. You know, I could have, he had calves that were about that big. And, uh, but Bob turned out to be a really smart young man. And um, I felt rather inadequate. He was so smart. He was so smart. He, uh, he grew up and he went to college at the University of Cincinnati. And about three years ago, I was down there with my wife and I stood up when he got his diploma in aerospace engineering. And I just screamed like I won the lottery. Because you see, the thing I remember is that little boy walking around the coffee table on the tops of his feet. And I'm going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I didn't know that God had plans for him long before I knew what he was going to do. That he never needed his feet. He was so smart, he'll get dummies like me to use my feet. (laughs) Dad, I need a room painted. Can you come over? Yeah, I'll be over, yeah. All right. And that little boy... He's this tall. He's a good-looking young man. And I'm not saying that because he's my son. He's just a good-looking young man. And uh, he's an agnostic. And that's what fascinates me. I've got two boys. One believes in God and one's an agnostic. And he's the agnostic. You can tell he's shifting, though, just a little bit as he gets older. And uh, he said not too long ago, last summer, he said he wanted to do something to help other kids that had crippling conditions that required hospitalization like he did. And he, he put this website up, said Savannah to Los Angeles. And he was going to ride a bike from Savannah to Los Angeles to raise money for kids who had crippling conditions like he did. And on his website, he says, a lot of people take walking for granted. He said, because of the kindness of strangers, I'm able to walk. And because I could walk, I could get a degree at the University of Cincinnati. I've walked on the Great Wall of China. I've worked for a prestigious jet turbine manufacturer in Tokyo, Japan. I've rode the rails in Europe. All because I can walk. And even if I have a bad day, I can go, at least I can walk. So I wanted to challenge myself and rise above my own physical limitations for the good of someone else so they might walk like me. That's you. That's you, that's you, that's you. It's the spirit of you in him, and he doesn't even know it. He was soaking up the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous the whole time he was around you. He rode 100 miles a day for 36 days in a row by himself across the country to shrine hospitals to raise money for other kids like him. 100 miles a day. The Tour de France was going on at the time. He said he stopped into a gas station in Las Vegas to eat about 15 candy bars and 10 bags of chips just to try to get some calories. And he saw the Tour de France, and he saw all these guys with spare bikes and masseuses and all this stuff. And I said, what do you think? He thought, wimp. (laughs) (laughs) He's a hell of a man. And I tell you what, I'm proud to be his father. It's a joy to be that man's father. The other boy... uh, He's, uh, he made me a grandfather, and uh, that's a joy. I like that. I like being a grandfather. He and his daughter lives with us right now, and uh, what, a, what a great privilege that is to be part of people's lives like that. You know, um, I've been sober 32 years, and you would think that I would know myself pretty good by now. And, and I know myself as 
well as I could possibly know myself. But I wanted to share this with people that have been around AA a long time. AA is really geared for new people. It's really geared for the newcomer. And I, I want to talk to people who have been around 10, 20, and 30 years. My own experience. Just for me. This is just my story. You know, for some reason, uh, I couldn't get along with my mother. Don't know why. Never could figure out why. And I, I had such guilt about that for so many years. And uh, it really caused me a problem. And there's some people that here that are aware of it. Isn't that right, Vicky? And I felt so guilty about that. I'd go to my sponsor. I'd go, I can practice this AA in every area of my life. But why is it I can't tolerate being around this? What is it? He says, Joe, he says, God's doing the change. And I don't have the answer for you. I'd burn up pens and papers. I prayed so much. I'd, I'd say, God, he goes, you again? I'd say, yeah, it's me. It's me again. And the only thing I could do is stay away. And I felt so guilty because this is the person that introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. It was just, it was the damnedest thing. And I'd go over to my mother's house three times a year. And I'd come home. I'd go over and visit for 30 minutes. That's all I could take. And I'd come home. My wife says, you've been to your mother's house, haven't you? I go, what do you mean by that? She goes, I can always tell. And I go, oh, really? Is it that bad? I'm, man, I'm, I feel so embarrassed. Like, is it that bad? Does it, she says, yeah, man, I can really tell when you... I thought, oh, man. I, did, I just didn't... I just figured, you know, I hear people at these conferences and they talk about how their families were reunited and people got back together again. And, I, and I'd hear that and I'd go, God, I, I wish I could have that. I, but I guess I'm just going to have to take satisfaction in the fact that I can be the best family member I can be until God puts things back together because I don't know the answer. I don't know. And uh, I had about, I was 29 years sober and I had taken this trip down to Peru. And while I was down there, I had this amazing spiritual experience. And all I can tell you about this spiritual experience is this. I was 52 at the time and you would think a man 52 would know himself. 29 years sober. What happened was, is all my beliefs about me, AA, God, the big book, being a member of AA, was shoved aside. And a whole new set of beliefs were here that I had never seen before. And something told me, I said, you've got to go home and talk to your mother. You've got to go home and talk to your mother. My mother was in a rest home at Twin Towers at the time. And I went over to see my mother. And all I can tell you is I looked at my mother... And I looked hard. And I could not see the things that used to irritate me so bad. And I looked and I know, I know they're there. I know they're there. And I couldn't see them. God had changed that. And my mother talked to me like her son. And I talked to her like she was my mother. Like we had never had any animosity. No cross words. No hurt feelings. And my relationship with my mother has been good ever since. And the only reason I share that with you is maybe if you're having a problem with a, a family member and you think, you know, I've been doing this thing for A for 10, 15, 20 years. I, I guess it's as good as it's going to get. I can tell you this, by staying on the path, the path keeps changing me. And if it keeps changing me, it'll change you. I had a hell of a relationship with my father. I wanted to have a relationship with my dad so bad, I, I, I thought I had done something wrong. 
I went to see my father every Monday, almost every Monday for 13 years. He would never come to the house. He was 15 minutes away. Why don't you come on out for Christmas Day? I got my, my, my uh, wife and kids would love to see you. Oh, no, i, I got to work. I, you know. I go back and see him after Christmas. Oh, I was over so-and-so's house. We had a great time. And I'm going, what? I thought, this is weird. I, I know he's sick. I, I can overlook this. I, it's just the way Dad is. I guess he's going to be like that till he dies. But then my boys were about seven or eight years old, and I said, what do you want to get Grandpa Gus for Christmas? They said, we don't know, Dad. We don't know him. We don't know what he likes. And then they said, Dad, have we done something wrong? I said, what? Yeah, have we done something wrong? Now, these little boys are seven and eight years old. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, we, we figured we did something wrong. Grandpa don't want to come see us. And I thought, oh, man, I, I grew up thinking I did something wrong. And I thought, nope, we're not going to do this. This might, this might not be the best A solution, but this is what I did. I went down to my father and I said, look, I love you. I said, but my boys think that they've done something wrong. That's why you won't come see them. He says, you're not going to change me. I go, I didn't come here to change you. I come here to tell you that we love you and that we would love to have you out at our house just an hour a year. But if you can't come out an hour a year, I can't bring my boys around no more because they think they've done something wrong. And I cannot tolerate my kids thinking they've done something wrong when they've done nothing. You know my number. You know my address. You're welcome anytime, but I can't do this no more. And for the next 13 years, I never heard a word. Never heard a phone call, never got a card. About two weeks before he died, his sister, my aunt, called and said, he, my, your dad wants to talk to you. I said, does he want to talk to me or does you want me to talk to him? He said, no, he wants to talk to you. So I went over to see him. He was dying of cancer. He was just a frail old man in a bed. Lost down to 90 pounds. And he says, how are you doing? I says, I'm doing okay. And you've got to remember, he hadn't seen my kids in 13 years. He said, what are your kids doing? I said, well, I've got one boy that's an apprentice electrician. And another boy, the other boy, Bob's at the University of Cincinnati. He's learning to be an aerospace engineer. He said, how's your wife? And I told him, and he just, a tear started to go down his cheek. And he said... Joe, I'm so sorry. I just didn't know. I didn't really understand what he meant. And uh, I said, it's all right, Dad. It's, it's okay. It's the way it had to happen. It's the way things went down. I says, I still love you as much as I always have. He said, I just didn't know. And I think he had a spiritual experience the last week of his life that allowed him to see how much we really loved him and what part he could have played in these people's lives. But for some reason, he couldn't. He couldn't or wouldn't. And don't know. But I know this. I'm not going to die on my bed going, I just didn't know. That you've turned me into a loving man, a giving man. Someone who cares, who can be involved with their family. I think he would have given anything to have that. He just couldn't do it. My brother, the last time I spoke here in 1990, I made a joke. Yeah, he's got sober in a penitentiary. Everybody's got to find it his way. <laughs> well, I look at things a little bit different now. When I was a young kid, people could see that my father wasn't there and my mom had a lot of problems. And they, they kind of said, Joe, take care of your little brother. Take care of your little brother. 
Now, I was only maybe 10 or 11, and you're telling a 10 or 11-year-old to take care of a 7 or 8-year-old, which really isn't fair because they're not equipped. They don't, they're not mentally or emotionally. But I would take care of your little brother. Well, like, that's my job, to take care of my little brother. Well, when he turned 12 and I was 15, I started him drinking. I started him doing all kinds of drugs like I was doing. So he wouldn't tell on me is what it was. Good big brother. Years later, I'm standing in a courtroom, and my brother's alcoholism tore people's lives apart. It tore people's lives apart. It destroyed a family. And I remember him standing there in front of the judge. And the judge says, I hereby sentence you to no more than three 10 to 25-year sentences in alcohol, to the, the Ohio State Penitentiary, no more than 25 and no less than 10. What do you have to say for yourself? And he's standing there in chains going, I'm just so sorry. I'm just so sorry. And it felt like somebody stabbed me in the heart. It's like, oh, I couldn't take care of my little brother. It's like, oh, God. And I didn't know that's what it was. At the time, I just, oh. Two years later, his wife died. And they brought him down a couple hours before the funeral. And he had leg irons on. And I looked in there, and he was kneeling over his wife's casket, crying, going, I'm just so sorry. And I went, oh, God damn, Joe. Damn. And then he left, and they brought the family in. And his little son was six or seven years old, little red-headed boy. And he'd come up, and he, and he hugged my leg on my thigh. And he looked up at me and says, I love you, Uncle Joe. And I says, I love you too, son. And a few days later, I'm in the comfort of my own home watching television, and Tuesday's child comes on. And they said, if you know of anybody that can provide a loving home for this little boy, his mother just died and his father's in the penitentiary, please call this number. And I went, oh, God damn. Oh, damn, I could take care of my little brother. Oh. And I visited my brother month after month, year after year, for 20 years. I asked God to make me useful. I just didn't know it was going to be that way. I would go into that prison and I would look at the mural above the door and it would say, all who enter, leave not hope behind. I'd go, Jesus. I remember going and uh, he got out about uh, 2005 and three years ago he called me. And he said, I I just called you because I was standing on the back porch of my property. I got six acres out here and I'm looking out. And he said, I got to thinking about you, Joe. So what were you thinking about, Vaughn? He said, I just want to thank you for taking care of me. So what do you mean? He said, uh, all those years you come to see me. When I got out, you come to get me and you took me and you bought me clothes and shoes and a coat. You put a lot of money in my pocket and you drove me all the way up to Cleveland to a halfway house. And then you brought me back down here and let me live with you and your wife till I got an apartment and a job and a car and I was gone. He said, thanks for taking care of me. It just means the world to me. And I, I said, you don't know what you just did for me. And he says, what did I just do for you? I said, you let me off the hook of a lifetime full of guilt. I didn't even know I had it. And I told him all the things that I had just told you. And I, I says, I didn't know that I felt so guilty, like I had not taken care of you. And, and uh, we, uh, intellectually, if you would have asked me, you don't think you're responsible for your brother in prison. Well, no, I don't give people alcoholism. But there was a part of me that did feel like I was responsible. And he says, that's a long time to carry guilt. And this is what the man who was locked up for 20 years told me. 
He said, you can put that guilt down now, Joe. It doesn't serve you anymore. There are some things I have found in sobriety that you can't inventory because you don't know they're there. I didn't know I had that guilt about that. I had no clue until he let me off the hook and thanked me for taking care of him. I just didn't know. I just didn't know. Just like my dad dying, I just didn't know. And I thought about the lifetime full of guilt that he had, that he, he had nothing, no, no tools, nothing to do with. You know what I mean? I, uh, I'd like to say this, my biggest supporter in sobriety, I'd like to say it's my home group or my sponsor or newcomers. But it's the woman who's sitting right out there, Vanessa, my wife. Who do you think I went home to after the door on the jail cell shut after that AA meeting? I went home to Vanessa. Who do you think I went home to after, after going down to the hospital and talking to drunks for the local jail? I went home to my wife. She's been my greatest supporter in sobriety. And I, I uh, can't think of a greater partner in life that I would want to spend my life with is, is Vanessa. I'm going to end my talk. i got three minutes. Pretty good on 60, huh? I'm watching. Remember, 60. I'll be there. Oh, no, I started a quarter after. No, your, your clock's off. Good man, good man. I want to end my talk by talking about a beggar who was sitting on the side of a street. He was sitting on an old wooden box. He'd been sitting there for about 30 years. And a man walked by, a well-dressed man. He had a hat turned upside down for people to throw coins in. And the man threw a few pieces of coins in there, and he says, uh, How long have you been sitting there? He says, I guess about 30 years now. And he says, You've been sitting on that same box? He goes, Yeah. He said, Did you ever look inside that box? No, I've never really had a need to look inside. And the man walked away, and he started thinking, well, all right, I'll bite. So he pried the lid off, and in that old box were bars of gold. They had been there the whole time. And I'm telling you as a newcomer, you might not believe this, but that old box that you think is your life has a lot of value on the inside, that your life is worth so much more than your alcoholism has told you that it was. That staying on the path is going to introduce you to a part of you that you never knew was there. And when you find it, you'll have to tell somebody about it. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. <laughs>